two problems. One is that he's more famous than he's anointed. And I'm not famous at all, so, but I still feel that way. Uh, and the other is he, his understanding supersedes his experience at times. And this is, you know, someone who's had a lot of experience saying that. And I just, I feel the same way about this message a little bit, is that my understanding might supersede my experience. And it's just a reality. I just want to show that. And then lastly is, um, and I'm going to bring this up at the end again too, but really uh, have a grace lens. I want you to view everything that I go through right now with, with a grace lens. Um, I think that'll give it good context, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that. So we've been, Dave's been in a series called The God's Eye View, and oh, and for those listening, you're out of luck, because a lot of this is on video. Um, so uh, uh, God's Eye View sees beyond self God's promises in context. So, and this isn't going to be super interactive, and some of this will be too small for you to see, but that's okay. But what are some... Um, what are some of the promises of God? Like, and I'm asking you actually, I'm going to hold out until I get a couple of responses. So what are some of the promises of God? Okay, he'll never fail us, all right. Peace, eternal life, never leave us or forsake us. Life and godliness. In a sense, we, I mean, if you Google like promises of God, you get a list of like a thousand um, I did and quickly abandoned that route. Uh, but here's some here. So a hope in a future, right? And these are all directly... I'm going to reference a lot of scripture. Some of it, I, most of it I will not quote because a lot of it is you're already familiar with. Um, the goodness of the, Lord, of the Lord in the land of the living. David says, I, I know that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Um, how about if God is for us, who can be against us from Romans 8, 32, right? If God is for us, who... Can, I mean, how crazy is that promise? If God is for us, who can be against us? The reality that God is for us. Um, I might be able to zoom in on this. Let's see if that works. I don't. Um, unfailing love. Psalm 103, uh, we quoted earlier. All of our diseases. He heals all of our diseases. Health, right? Um, in Ephesians 1.19, Paul prays that the church would know the incredible greatness of his power. What does that even mean? The incredible greatness of God's power. Um, all authority given for the benefit of the church. And then in John... In 14, 15, and 16, there's these crazy promises where he says, whatever you ask for in my name, you shall receive. And he says it three different times. In, in each chapter, he explains that whatever you ask for in my name, you'll have. And, I mean, to be honest, I've tested that, and it hasn't always worked. And that, the promise, I know, isn't the problem, right? So, but these promises are big, okay? Like, heal all your diseases. I have seen, I have prayed for someone, and they have not been healed. So, these promises are bigger than we have grasped and bigger than we realize. I just want to emphasize, they're, they're huge. The promises are enormous. Um, when Jesus curses the fig tree and then they go back the next day and the disciples are like, oh my goodness, look, it's dead. And he says, look, I, you know, let me tell you something here. Uh, you, you're gonna, he says you're going to do greater things. He says, look, you could tell that this fig tree is nothing. You could tell that mountain to cast itself into the sea. And if you have faith and don't doubt, it'll be done. I tried that one too. Anyway, but the pro- I don't believe that the, pro- the problem is in the promise. Um, I tried it with like a rock. Anyway, just kidding. Um, so these promises though, they speak to a relationship between heaven and earth. And so every single one of these promises speak to the relationship between heaven and earth. They don't exist on an island, right? And nothing exists on an island. And I will almost always bring that up when I, when I speak because truth exists 
in context. So between heaven and earth, all of these promises, they exist in the context of a rebellion, right? Like there was a, a, a rebellion between heaven and earth. There's a broken relationship. Isaiah 53.6 says that um, we all like sheep have gone astray, right? We all have gone astray. So the context of these promises is in what? It's in a reality where there is this broken relationship between heaven and earth. Um, we've, we've addressed Isaiah 61 a lot, right? Where Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news, to heal the brokenhearted, to the poor, to the sick, the oppressed, to those bound in chains. Well, why is he saying that? Because there are the poor, there are the oppressed, there's the bound in chains. Like, like the promises exist in the dynamic of major problems. And I think that that's important to understand, that the, all these promises have to do with the relationship between heaven and earth and the undoing. So, now we have here, one man undid the rebellion, right? So you have this, the rebellion is the problem, and one man fixed it. He fixed the problem, and uh, how did he do it? So, and a lot of this stuff we know. Like, in fact, everything I'm sharing we already know. Um, but how Jesus did it was true submission and true union, right? That, re- that dynamic of Jesus' relationship with the Father being... Sub- so we have humanity rebelled, right? Broken relationship. The, all the curses and, the, and you know, when you have broken code, anyone in IT know things don't work properly, right? So basically, when humanity rebelled, code was broken, things don't work right. So that's what we have. So one man undoes the rebellion, basically fixes the code. He's 100% God, 100% man, right? So now we have a human who what? He does the opposite of what, what the Adam did, or, or Adam meaning all humanity did, is he um, had no broken relationship and was truly submitted. So if you think of the wilderness where he was tested, whoops, um, uh, how he submitted to the Father, he was tested to rebel and he didn't. Um, he said, you know, several times, I only, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. That I, my words are the Father. I only say what I hear the Father saying. So there's this submission to what his will was. To Philip, he says, look, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, don't you get it? At least believe because of the works I've done. Like, I, me and the Father are one. Um, he obviously prays in John 17. It's throughout the scriptures, obviously, that, that Jesus and the Father were perfectly united. Right? Perfectly united without any break, without any rebellion. And then, obviously, the ultimate example is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's small up there, but... He literally says, not your will, but mine, right? So he, the, the, he said, if there's any way you could take this cup from me, any way, take it, but not your will, but my will be done. So he, he submits his will completely. And so this one man, uh, and I, a couple quick things. How much help did he get from us? None, right? He didn't get any help from us. There's none at all. Uh, and then how much did it cost him? Everything, right? Um, and so in 2 Corinthians one twenty, zoom in here, it says, For the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. And so I wanted, I wanted to make it clear that, the, um, uh, that Jesus is the one to whom all the promises were made. Jesus is the one... He is the man that, that earned the promises. Have we earned any of the promises? No, right? Romans 4 is super clear that like uh, being a, a child of promise versus a child of works. Um, so, but Jesus is the one. 
through, that undid the rebellion, all of the promises. So all those promises that I read earlier, like we could list off all these promises. These promises we have in Christ. He's the one who earned them. He's the one through whom we have them. Uh, now, so now I'm bringing back the heaven and earth dynamic here. Um, so you can't separate the promises of God from our union with Christ. Like they're not, they don't exist outside of that. All of the promises of God exist because we're united with him. He's the one who has the promises. He's the one who received them all. He's the one through whom all the promises are real. And so it's through union with him that God's will is done on the earth and that these promises exist. Whoops, that was kind of cool. Um, so, and if you can think about it for a second. What promises do we have? Do we have apart from him? Like, are there any promises of God, any promises in the word that we have apart from Christ? It's, it's a question I never thought of before, but it's kind of obvious, right? Obviously, we have, you know, all of the promises are found in him, in him, uh, nowhere else. And then we have Jesus saying uh, that you, you know, he, he prays in John 17, and he says in John 20. So in John 17, his prayer is, as you sent me in the world, so I send them. And then John 20, he tells the disciples, as the Father sent me, now I send you. And so, um, what I'm going to get back to is that if you look at the link between what Jesus did with his perfect union and his perfect submission in accessing these promises, that these, uh, that that's, that's the way these promises are accessed now. It's done through union with him. If all the promises exist in him, then how do we access the promises? In our union with him, in being one with him. And so I just kind of want to lay that as a foreground, and then I'm going to um, go into one of the things that I think hinders us in this, and one of the things that I think causes us to have a hard time um, with this dynamic. So here's here's... The degree to which we are united and submitted to Jesus is the, de- is the degree to which we access the promises. Which is obvious. If, if we have no promises, I know I'm being a little repetitive here, but if we have no pr- promises outside of him, then our access to the promises is directly linked to our union with him. There's no other way. And so, kind of an equation there. Now, um, oftentimes, when someone comes to Christ, like our first goal is this. We want to get them to to take God and put it part of their life. Like, you just need God in your life, right? It's a common phrase. You just need God in your life. We need, to, we, need to, we need to make God part of your life. And that's the first step. But we all know that that's not really how it should be. Uh, we know that it should be more like this, right? God in the center of our lives. So this probably isn't totally crazy to any of you if you grew up in America. So God is in the center of our life, and then you learn something like family, right, is next. So God first, family second, then work or friends, that kind of thing. And this is your life. And this is a picture of how it should be, except that I completely disagree. I think that this is a really, really broken understanding, and it makes it really hard to view the promises in the right context. Because when we have this understanding, instead of this one, which is my life is a part of what God is doing, all of it, like my life exists as a, as a piece of what he's doing, it's, it's, there's no, I'm not trying to make him part of mine. And what happens when we, when we miss this, um, when, we, when we have the one on the right, uh, 
what happens is this. We take the promises of God and we take them and we apply them to our life. And I'm going to balance this out later, okay? And I'm taking a little bit of an extreme right now to correct an imbalance because I'm not whole saying that we don't apply his promises to our life. But, the, but when the, the one on the right is our paradigm, then we're going to take his promises and we're always applying them to our life, to the things we're working on, to the things that are important, to the things that matter to us. And because and, he's in the center, and so we sort of like treat him like a genie. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like, like we're applying these promises to what we have instead of applying our life to, to him. And um, I want to I point out that when Jesus was in the wilderness, that's exactly what the enemy tried to do, right? He took the promises of God and he tried to apply them outside the will of God. So in the, in the, the, the devil himself basically tried, took the word of God and said, doesn't it say if you throw yourself off here, his angels will, will grab you if you are the son of God? So he's basically taking promises and trying to apply them outside the will of God. And I think that one of the, the biggest um, reasons that this becomes so easy for us is because I don't know, I haven't lived outside of America that much, but I know that in America, it's very easy to get this idea that like, as long as God's the center of my life, I'm good, instead of like taking a bigger perspective and realizing that my whole life is part of what God is doing. It's all part of what he is doing. I don't have my own life anymore. Um, uh, imagine, so when we think of Jesus' life, um, can you imagine if he had some like other agenda besides his, God's will? Like, kind of like, imagine if Jesus was an American, right? Like, like, he'd be building this carpenter business on the side, and he'd be, like, having all these things he was focused on, and he'd be, you know, uh, at the same time, like, being the Son of God and accomplishing, taking the keys and back for humanity, right? Redeeming the world, uh, bringing the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. But imagine if he had, like, another goal that was important to him. It would be kind of funny to think of Jesus, like, sort of, like, having to balance the two. I've got to balance God and work, and I've got to balance God and family. Like, it's crazy for us to think of that. Like, we see Jesus, and we recognize he was wholly committed, like, 100%. Um, he was given over to the will of God. 100% given over to the will of God. And in America, we're almost taught to balance them, to, like, to like mix God in. And when you mix God in, then you're like using the promises of God to get this promotion or, or whatnot. And, and, um, and you can take what I'm saying the wrong way, and I'm going to try to make sure we don't do that at the end. But I do think it's important that we recognize the difference here. Um, so here's, I made this up, Catch-22 Burnout. I don't know if it even makes sense, but I think it does. I think I know what Catch-22 means. So, um, it relates to this. So, so God's primary desire is you, both on an emotional level, it's what he cares the most about, but also you in the sense of your character. Like the work in you is his primary goal, more than whatever work you're doing. Whatever work you're doing out in the world, it's the work in you that matters. And sometimes, here's what happens. We have these agendas, right? And, well, let me... I think I can explain it in a second a little better. So, uh, he cares more about you than your work and plans because you are the only conduit for your work. Like, you are the conduit through which what God is doing through you goes. There's no other option. Like, you can't skip who you are in his work and that, what he's doing. Um, so, 
heaven's, you, are heaven, you are the conduit between heaven's will and earth. You can't skip that. You can't go around it. That's just the way it is. Um, but here's the catch-22 that we deal with sometimes, is that we have this agenda of our own, right? And we are, um, we are sitting there trying to, uh, we're trying to, to make it happen, we're applying the promises of God to it. We're quoting scriptures like, you know, he's, uh, if God is for me, who can be against me, right? And God, in his ultimate care for you, is basically trying to break your will. He's trying to break it down until you agree with him about everything. And so what happens is we're applying the promises of God to something that, like, we're working on, and it's not working because what God is doing is he's, he's breaking us down and he's basically teaching us to die to ourselves and die to our will. And um, we end up with this frustrated cycle of trying to apply his promises to our own mission. And that's just going to lead to burnout. And eventually you're either like, God's promises don't work, or you die to your mission. And I'm going to get to this later too. It doesn't mean your mission even changes, but the ownership changes. Right? Like, it's not your mission anymore, it's his mission. You may be doing the exact same thing, but you're no longer doing it as your own. You're no longer doing it for yourself. You're no longer doing it as your own agenda. It becomes a sub-agenda to what he's doing. And so, that's what I mean by the catch-22 burnout, is this, like, you're trying to make it happen, and you're doing what you're supposed to do, which is apply the God's promises to that, but it's not happening. But the reality is, is that his first goal is not whatever work his primary goal is not whatever work you're trying to accomplish. Whatever mission, whatever context God has put you in, he cares. He cares desperately. But he's got to work on you first. He's got to refine your character and who you are because, again, I'm being a little repetitive, but because who you are is, the, is, the, is what the work flows through. And so if there's mixture, then the work is going to be mixed. If you've got a lot of selfish ambition, I mean, I, and, and I want, I'll... I'll I'm going to use myself as an example for a second. Like, I'm pursuing this vision that is like nonprofit based and trying to change the world and end hunger and all these things, right? But I can tell you myself that selfish ambition is mixed in. Like, like a desire for uh, financial stability is mixed in. A desire for recognition is mixed in. Okay? And... And what God does is he has to break those things because the fruit that I eventually produce will only be as pure as the vine or the branch. Dang it, Jesus, we're the branches, he's the vine. As the branch, right? We know, we know he's pure, right? He's completely pure. But we as the branches sometimes need that pruning because we're not pure. And sometimes we think we're applying God's promises and it's just not happening. And the reality is this, like God is having to cut and that reason it seems in your view like it's not working is because it can't work or it's going to produce fruit that has selfish ambition in it. It's going to produce fruit that is, that is you know, I'm, we're going to get that financial stability that comes along with what I'm working on and then my trust is going to be in that financial stability that I've got based on these things instead of the things that he needs to grind out in me now. Like, it's, like this pruning is a process and I want to let you know that if you step back and realize that God's promises exist in this paradigm, it'll be easier on you a little bit. Your cycle around the mountain through the desert will be shorter. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm going to go back to that real quick. 
So uh, Watchman Nee, the quote from Watchman Nee, says, eventually a believer will realize that the main opponent to their walk isn't the demonic realm or the world, but their self. And just accept it now, or you can realize it two, three years from now. Like, I'm just telling you, that's a fact. Like, like anyone who's maturing in their walk with the Lord will realize that their main hindrance is their self. It's their selfishness. And that's the self that gets mixed into this works for God we're trying to do. And just because I don't have it anywhere else in here, we have to be careful that we don't just give our lives to Christianity, but we give our lives to Christ. Because when you give your life to Christianity, you're not really, you're still your own master. You just have these rules that are now like these boundaries, right? And so if you give your life to Christ, you're no longer your own master. And that's all the difference in the world. And it's really easy to just give your life to Christianity and then be your own master. So we want to avoid that. Um, so I've already covered that. So there's, we've talked about this union between heaven and earth and that we have a union with the promises of heaven through Jesus. And the, the scriptures give us more than three metaphors, but I'm just going to go after three real quick. These are three like very, very like kind of big metaphors in the scriptures about our union, the, the union between heaven and earth. So one is the body, right? So in Corinthians, other places, says Jesus is the, in Colossians, Jesus is the head and we're the body but that we're one, right? Um, and so we'll, we'll jump over them real quick and then go back. So with marriage, um, obviously we're the bride of Christ, right? So we're the bride of Christ. There's that metaphor there. And then Jesus, and by the way, just because I call these metaphors doesn't mean that they're, that's probably not the pictures is better because sometimes metaphor implies that it's not the real thing as well. So actually I mean picture because we really are a body. We really are married and there really is a kingdom. So, don't, don't misunderstand my use of the word metaphor there. So there isn't room for two agendas in any of these pictures. So if you take a, a body, right? When you have a body and you have a part of your body that has its own agenda, right? What do we call that? Cancer. Exactly. We call it cancer. It has to be eradicated, right? So imagine, even, even if you're being silly, like a silly Three Stooges skit where the, the arm is knocking the guy in the face, right? Like we can be funny with this, but... The reality is that a body has a unified will. It doesn't have multiple wills going on, right? A body has one will, and there, look, there are sub-agendas, right? There are sub-parts, there are sub-roles, and that's the reality in the body of Christ, and that's where our walk is going to be different for everyone. But the reality is that there's not room for two agendas in a body. So if you look at a marriage, right? So imagine you get married, right? And, you know, the next day your wife is off, like, apartment hunting for herself, right? Not, and she's not mad, no fight, but she's like, you know what, I'm going to be off. I'm just doing their own thing, their own plan, their own agenda. Like, like there's no, obviously when you have two, the beauty of marriage is that two wills become one will, right? And both wills, and I'll get into this later too, both wills remain alive, but both of them die too. We have this death and this resurrection thing that happens with marriage. And so, um, obviously, the Bible is clear that Christ is the head of the church, right? And so, if we don't have the same agenda as our husband, like, we're, we're off, right? Like, it's not right. And then, the last analogy is kingdom. And the way I want to give this analogy is, that it, it hit me a few weeks ago that if I'm a king, right? All-powerful king. 
and I've got a servant. You have different types of servants, right? You have your servant that like has their own agenda and they're just doing their own thing. You have your servant who like serves you and they're like good, but they kind of also have their own like family to tend to and plans and they're building a little business on the side, but they're still a good piece of your kingdom. But then you have a servant who is wholly dedicated to you. He's basically, him and you have one will. Like you trust, his, his only agenda is yours. So I'm a king and I've got a servant whose only agenda is my agenda. He has no other agenda. He literally has no other agenda living in him or her. How much authority and power do I give to those three different types of servants? Right? If I've got that servant that his only agenda is my agenda, he has all of my authority. There's a learning process. There'll be a growth process maybe in the application of that at the, at the very least. But I'm going to give a servant who has no other agenda, no ulterior motives, no ulterior desires, all of my authority. He can do whatever because there's no break. There's no lack of union. There's no lack of connection there. So these are the, by the way, again, these are the pictures that the, that the scriptures give for what's going on here. This is how the scripture describes the church on earth. This is not me like doing this. I mean, this is the way it's done. It's, there is that type of union in that. So check out these. These are some verses. I would kind of, want, kind of want to read a promise and then one of these at the same time. But these are some verses that are just hardcore, right? So Jesus says to the rich man, go. Oh, you're wealthy. Go, sell everything you have, then come and follow me. Doesn't that seem unfair? Right? Like, we, if we, we, we would be like, dude, Jesus, he was close. He was close. Like, you just ruined it. Like, we could have had him two years later. He would have known you. Like, you know, we could have eased him in. Jesus is, you know, oh, you're wealthy? Here's what you need to do. Go sell everything you have. Come follow me. Um, Paul says, everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it for Christ. Right? That's one of those that's like easy to put up as a banner, but hard to actually do. Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to, everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it in his name? In his representation? His name, right? In his rep- everything you do, do it. It's hardcore, man. It's way easier just as a slogan. Um, whomever wants to follow me, must take up their cross daily. No, everyone knew what that meant. When you carry your cross, like, imagine that imagery he's using. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Because you're kind of like a buddy, buddy, Lord, you know? You're like a Lord, Lord. No, like, why do you call me Lord, but not do what I say? He, um, you are not your own, bought for the price. Right? That's in Corinthians Second uh, Corinthians Chapter 6, you are not, do you not know that you are not your own? You are bought. In Romans, Paul refers to himself as a slave of God, a slave of Christ. Um, he tells some, he says, Jesus says, the kingdom is like some people that were going to build something. Uh, what are they going to do? They're going to get halfway done or are they going to figure out how much this, this thing costs before it starts? He basically warns them. He says, if you're going to start, you better count the cost. You better count the cost of this thing before you begin. Um, how about this one? Whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Right? Or whoever, in other parts of the, the Gospels, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so in a, syncretism is the mixing of culture and the truth. It happens in every culture. In America, where we send missionaries out. Anyway, um, 
with that imperialistic mindset, we, and every culture doesn't realize that this, their own syncretism. Well, you know, this consumer mentality of being able to kind of like pursue the American dream and pursue Christ, that's syncretism. And you can't, you can't do both. Anyway, uh, a man walking in a field notices a treasure. I know this can be interpreted both ways, but I definitely think it applies to us. So this is this guy. Jesus tells the story of this guy. He's walking on the field. And he kicks something under a tree. He starts digging. Oh my goodness, it's like a pot of gold or whatever, like a treasure chest. The gold, of course, is worth kajillions. The field is worth, you know, a million. He's like, okay, if I get all my assets together, if I do a fire sale, I can do this. So he goes and he sells everything, does a fire sale, gets his million, buys the field, now he's a gajillionaire. So, but the, the, the dynamic is, you, you, I'm, I'm telling you about a treasure, but it's going to take a fire sale. Um, Paul says in, in uh, Galatians 6, because of the cross of Christ, I have been crucified to this world, and this world has been crucified to me. Um, uh, the New Living Translation says, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has been crucified. Uh, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Like, if you grew up in the church, you also grew up with these verses. Don't let that dull their effect. It's done it for me. Right? It's dulled it for me. Um, so, and I, I know I'm distracting you with this right now, but I want to, I guess I could, I can do whatever I want. I'm up here. That's a joke. Um, so, but I want to take you back to the way that Jesus undid the rebellion and parallel the world is still in rebellion all the brokenness from the rebellion is still there and if we want to see the promises of God unfolding and the kingdom brought to this earth it's going to take the same kind of uh, union and submission and in the same way that Jesus didn't have other agendas we can't have other agendas. Okay. Um, so I listened to Turner's message eh, two weeks ago. On um, he, call, he called it a clash of kingdoms. And he basically explained this dynamic. And I'm kind of going to use it as an analogy. You'll see how it ties in really well. Basically said that when we're born again, now we have an, a kingdom inside of us, right, that hates sin, that loves God. Um, but we still have an old man. Like we still have the body with its old habits. And we still have the soul with those old habits. And there's a clash of kingdoms. And he actually said something encouraging in that if you struggle with sin, that is a sign that you are saved. Because there's that clash going on. If you do not struggle with sin, then you are, I mean, meaning you sin and you have no struggle with it, that is a problem. That's more the scary thing, right? So, and what happens is this. Um, we, we're told that we need to die to ourselves, right? And this is a picture of, you know, a, a picture of a human in that we are a spirit, uh, or we are, we are a spirit in a soul and a body, and that our spirit is what's reborn. Our spirit is what has, where the new life is, right? Your spirit, the new life does not just come in your body, right? This new life does not, your body will still die. Um, hence, we, that we need in the resurrection, etc. Now, there's a clash in, in, our, in the realm of our actions. And so I'm going to put the realm of our actions in the body, right? Now, don't get caught up on this. There's major overlap. This is the, one of the best pictures we have. I'm not saying this is 
I'm not saying if I cut Turner in half and show him to you, he's going to look like that, right? So, because um, you, you can get caught up on things, and I don't want you to get caught up on, on like, little things. But, so, when Turner's talking about, like, sin we struggle with, like, I struggle with looking at pornography, or I struggle with uh, um, punching people, right? Whatever. Like, these are bo- actions of the body that you're used to, and, and then what happens is the cross cuts, right? The cross cuts, and we, we die to these actions, and we allow what's happened on the inside to manifest, its, manifest itself out. Well, what I want to propose is that the cross doesn't stop there, right? It tends to start with more outward things because we notice those things, but it keeps cutting in. It cuts all the way into the soul, and our will itself, it cuts. It cuts our will until, until we die to our own will, like Jesus said, but we die to our own will and we say your will be done like garden of me i don't want to go through with this but not my will but yours i mean that was jesus's mantra of his entire life right was what is your will i only say what the father's saying i only do what the father's doing and so what happens is this god will cut away and he'll break down our will until for you sci-fi people you'll like this Okay, so have you heard of singularity? No? Shook says yes. All right. um, so the idea of singularity is kind of, a, it's in science fiction writing. Um, it's the idea that uh, technology is increasing and improving at such a rate that eventually it will improve itself. And at that point, it's really hard to predict. And if you tie that into the human brain, and once we are connected with technology that's constantly um, uh, improving itself beyond what we can even think of improvements and that's integrated with the human brain that you have this singularity between and you have this explosion of change right that's the idea behind it it has nothing to do with Einstein really and it has nothing to do with R whatever this is equals O2 I just thought that would be a funny picture to put on there so but anyway that's the idea of singularity so and this is this is uh, what did you say um, so but uh, this is an equation that doesn't mean anything because I just made it up. But uh, the, what I'm, I'm connecting the idea of singularity to the idea when the church has one will. When we have one will, there's going to be an explosion of redemption on this earth. Right? When we don't have our own agendas distracting us and our own... Um, and, and if, if you want to... You know, here's, a, here's a good test, right? And I'll go there later. So here's what this is. Uh, promises equal big will divided by little will. And anything divided by itself is what? One. Yeah, anything divided by itself is one. So one is one will, right? So, not bad, right? You guys can use this. Uh, so, pro- so promises equal big W divided by little w, meaning when our wills are unified, when, when, you're, when, when what you want, what you desire is the same thing that God wants and desires. Like, can you imagine that? I mean, that, I mean, that is... Now, that's when we're going to see these promises. That's when these promises where Jesus says, whatever you ask for in my name, done. Think of the king with a servant who has one agenda. Whatever you say, done. You have my full authority. When our will, when we've allowed ourselves to, to die... Now, 
So what I, I want to I want to bookend. This is the, the the back end of the bookend, the left, right, um, with some things. So dying to your will does not mean that your will is dead. Okay. In the same way that dying to your flesh does not mean that your body is dead. Like my body, I tried to die to my flesh daily, and yet here it is. Right. Still functions, works. So dying to your will. It doesn't mean that your will ceases to operate or exist. It just means that you die to your own will. Okay? You're dying to your will. That's all that that means. So I just want to be really clear on that. This is not a, please don't leave out of here passive. Okay? Be aggressive. Don't be passive. Your will is not dead when you, because you're one with Christ. Um, your will just becomes renewed. Um, so this union that I'm talking about, remember I said like I feel like my... Understanding is well beyond my experience. Man, I don't I want to grow in this area so much. Um, but union is a process, and the process is possible by the blood. It hit me a while back. This is another analogy, but it hit me, it's easier to understand for me. It hit me a while back that um, there was a profaneness to the disparity of love between the way I loved God and the way God loved me. So imagine if you're married to someone and one loves the other fully, so much, and the other loves a little. There's something profane about that, right? We're offended. Like if I have friends and I saw this going on, I would be upset. There's an offense that the love is so uneven. Well, the reality is that's me and God. I mean, that's the reality. Like there is a different... My my love for God um, is... So fall so short of his love for me that there isn't a, a profane offense there. Jesus said, don't throw your pearls to the swine, right? Or something like that. Now, but the blood covers that, guys, because in Christ, I love him with his love. Like, I do love him fully. Like, I love God more than I know. I love him as much as he loves me in Christ. So the blood covers that disparity, and it makes the process of growing to love God more Possible. Because if not, we'd probably fall dead. Like, there's, there's a real offense there in the disparity of how, how the, the purity of his love for me and the impurity of my love for him. But the blood makes me pure so I can grow without dying. Um, so with, what I'm talking about with this union of wills, it's a process. Like, we'll never, like on this side of, the, of, of his return or something, like, I'm not going to be fully there where my will never will something else. I mean, Jesus himself said, I don't want this, but your will, right? So I don't want to put up some challenge here that's just so impossible and far away. I want to let you know that this challenge is covered by the blood. Like, this process is covered by the blood, and that's a really good thing. Um, exactly. As I said, view this message through a lens of grace. Um, and then I want to say, this does not mean that anything you're doing is not God's will. Okay? I'm not telling you that, like, just because I have mixture in what I'm working on with Experiment Inc. doesn't mean it's not God's will. It just means that he's working on me, right, until the purity of the fruit is right. Because the purity of the, of the branch is right. Right? So I'm not saying, like, oh, whatever you're doing is probably not God's will. You guys don't, you know. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'll give you a test. If I go back to the, um, this picture right here, not that one, that one, okay. If I go back here, 
you'll find that your life is meant to flow inward to outward, right? Which means that your intellect and your will are enlightened by the Spirit. You have a relationship with God there. Your emotion follows that, okay? Your body, your actions follow your soul, right? We can see that a fallen person is someone who works opposite. They have an urge. Their body has an urge. They follow it. So when, we, when it says that we fell, we literally like fell into ourselves. Like we, the code broken thing is living outward in. The way we're meant to live is inward out, right? So the things that your emotions are attached to will typically reveal your will a little bit. So if you take like me and what, I, what I'm working on or anything, like if your emotions are going up and down with your finances, then... There's an area where God needs to, right? So the things that your emotions are moved by will tend to reveal um, the things that God needs to work on. So if I take, oops, I'm sorry. Um, so when I said that what you're doing right now, any part of your life, whether it's a relationship or a task or whatever, I'm not saying that it's not God's will. I'm just saying that your emotions will reveal the parts that you need to give to him. Right? The, when your emotions are going up and down with these things, you need to give that to God. And then, um, lastly, this, this big picture that God's promises exists in the realm of his redemptive plan, in the realm of his will, that doesn't, that's not a contrast that his promises are for you. Right? There's no compete. The reality is that you cannot separate God's big picture redemptive plan, what he's doing on the earth, his will, from his care and, and desire and passion for you as an individual. Those aren't two different things that he's balancing, right? If I ask you this, who are the, who are the promises in the word for? They're for us, right? Well, they're also for Jesus, right? Guess what? We're one. So it makes sense. It's a trick question. So the, the promises, there is, no, there is no separation. And when we sense a separation... That's just the part we need to give them. That's the part that needs to die. That's the part that needs to die. When things are going our way and we're frustrated, um, that's just, I'm, I'm shining the light and saying, we have our own will. And sometimes we don't realize it because we've, we gave our life to Christianity, but we haven't really given our life, or we need to practice or continue on a regular basis to give our life to Christ. Um, uh, Tom, do you want to lead us in a little response here? Romans 12. Worship team, uh, come on up. And prayer team, go ahead and go towards the back.